Hey everybody, thanks for joining the podcast. My name is Grayson Hoffman. I am a Lake Anna resident, a Lake Anna real estate agent, and a Lake Anna real estate investor here at Lake Anna. Today's podcast guest is named John Odenkirk. John works for a Commonwealth of Virginia government agency called the Virginia Department of Wildlife and Recreation, also known as DWR, where he has worked as a fisheries biologist for almost 40 years. Since 1989, John has been stationed here uh, at Lake Anna as a fisheries biologist. In short, he is the point man for maintaining a healthy fish population and healthy fish habitat here at Lake Anna. Some of the topics that we're going to uh, discuss here on this episode of the Lake Anna podcast are the, the various species of fish that are and are not present at Lake Anna, why Lake Anna has become such an incredible fishing spot for anglers coming here to fish, especially largemouth bass from all over the United States, how John and his team go, go about monitoring and caring for the fish population and the fish habitat here at Lake Anna, and we also talked about Cindy, the nearly six foot long, 100 plus pound channel catfish that they accidentally caught uh, in one of their surveys um, on the public side of Lake Anna. And yes, Cindy, who they named the channel catfish Cindy, was safely released back into the public side of Lake Anna. But she was uh, caught up, you'll hear, down from the depths uh, of the public side near the dam at Lake Anna. John has a master's degree in uh, fisheries biology from Tennessee Tech, and he has also authored many art articles in um, scholarly journals about fisheries, fishing, and fisheries biology. In the end, this guy really knows his stuff, so I hope you can just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Lake Anna podcast. It's very interesting. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. John, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks Thank for, you. Thanks for joining us, man. My pleasure. So I just want to cut right to the chase and ask the main question that's probably on everyone's mind. Are there alligators in Lake Anna? Probably not. Probably not. I I'm can't sure. say no. Because <laughs> I, look, I've been doing this a long that was time. A, let me be real clear. That was a joke <laughs> question for everybody. There are no now, alligators. If there's one thing you learn dealing in the biological sciences for decades. Never say never. Exactly. And in nature... Anything is possible. Sharks, piranhas. Hey, w people dump crap everywhere. We, we find pacus, piranhas, you name it, Oscars, um, tilapia, fish that shouldn't be in you know a water body. We find them from time to time. So it's like in said, Lake Anna. In Lake Anna, we've never found any of those I just mentioned. No, um, we have had reports over the years of alligators in Lake Anna. They've never been substantiated, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. uh, but just you know. They, People do weird things sometimes, and you never know what you're going to find. Now, you're a trained, educationally trained, like, biologist, Correct. so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, could an, an alligator be transported from its normal habitat in what southern Florida brought up, dumped into the lake? Would it survive? It would, especially given that we have a thermally enriched environment here uh, in the winter. You know, typically a lot of these species, the, the cold is what gets them. Uh, but mm -hmm. in, in a mild winter in a thermally enriched system, you know, potentially, yeah, they could survive for a period of time. What's thermally enriched mean? Well, it's the, the, the what we like to call the waste heat treatment facility with Dominion is uh, the warm side, the warm side, the hot side, the so private side. So if there's gators, they're probably over here on the private so, side. Uh, that'd be my money would be there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is just to be clear for everyone. Yeah, I, I've never seen them either. No. This is actually quasi inside joke material because every once in a while on social media, you see people posting. I saw a shark in like I saw an octopus in Lake Anna right. the other day. Yeah, we've heard a lot of it. But there are, correct me if I'm wrong, there are some giant catfish right down deep. That's a fact. And uh, we, when I say we, I talk about DWR, Department of Wildlife Resources. We used to be called Game and Fish, but we changed our name a few years ago. Um, it was probably 20 years ago, maybe a little more, that we were doing a gillnet survey uh, as part of our normal sampling procedures to monitor the fish community. A gillnet, a gillnet survey. Net Can you survey. pause and just explain what a gillnet survey is? Right. So it's one of the things that we do annually to assess the status of the fish populations in Lake Anna. Mm -hmm. And a net, there, there's two types of things we do mostly. One is electrofishing, which is an active gear where we're we're out kind of moving and putting electricity in the water to stun fish, mm -hmm. primarily largemouth bass. That's our species of interest when we electrofish. And then there's gill netting, which is a passive technique where we set the nets out and the fish swim into the nets and get caught. And it, it targets a different group of fish. In, in the case with the gill netting, we're targeting a shad or forage species, the species of fish that we stock, like striped bass or walleye, and then also uh, fish that aren't adequately sampled by electrofishing, like catfish. Mm -hmm. So we get these different groups of fish in our net surveys. And to go back to the giant catfish story, mm -hmm. um, there, there's actually kind of two facets to the giant catfish story. One is that, yes, we caught a state record, probably a world record channel catfish in Lake Anna and released it uh, 20 years ago. Down in a net. In a net down around Dyke 3, well, right at the Rock Quarry, where it drops from like three feet to 90 feet. Which side of the lake are we talking about? On the, on the cold side, right in front of the cold dam. Cold side in front, right of, the in front of the dam. But between Dyke 3 and the dam, where, where the right. old quarry is, where it's extremely rugged bathymetry. Uh, perfect habitat for catfish. You've got the heated discharge coming through there. Great growing conditions. You've got forage concentrated there. You can't draw up a better scenario from a physical habitat perspective to grow a giant world record channel cat. And there he was, my friend of mine that worked for me at that time, Scott Herman, uh, I think he named her Cindy. Uh, <laughs> we released that fish, it was December. And uh, Were you there for this? I was there, but we had to get, we didn't, our scale wasn't big enough to weigh it. Uh, Joe Diedrich, who was the Caroline County Game Warden at the time, had brought us a scale to weigh it. And I honestly, I, I didn't even think uh, about, in my memory, I can't remember what that fish weighed in at, but it was a world record uh, channel catfish. Roughly, roughly. We're not going to put you on, but roughly how, was, how big? It was really big. Well, what's really, I mean, some of the people listening, they was, don't know if, you know, this is big or big as this house. It was, it was pushing 100 pounds. Wow. So that's got to be, I mean, so that's, it's length five, six feet long. Oh, yeah. We've got, yeah, I, I, I got pictures. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So you were there. Okay. So gill net fishing, is that the picture? One of the pictures you bought? Is that yeah, an example? That, yeah. Of, that's it. I was pulling a net. Okay. And, and normally we don't catch fish that big in those nets because right. they're not designed to catch fish that big. That was going to be my question. How did I not break the net? There was a gizzard shad in that net. And it was probably a three pound gizzard shad, which is one of the primary forage species in this reservoir. And, and, and Cindy had gone in and eaten that shad as it was still entangled in the net, thereby getting the net caught in in her throat and around the gill rakers and so we we, we essentially <clears throat> excuse me rescued her um by cutting we had to cut the net out and re release her in fine shape if, wow. if, it, if she'd been there for a couple of days she probably would have died but we were on the net the next morning so you know she didn't have time to, to check out on us and then the other thing i want to mention yeah. is in, in terms of the giant catfish realm yes recently and not just in lake annabelle in many many reservoirs in virginia and in the united states people are illegally 
stocking or introducing a fish called a blue catfish. And we have seen numbers of blue catfish beginning to skyrocket here in Lake Anna, just like in, in uh, Bugs Island Reservoir and Lake Gass and other places in Virginia where they've been illegally stocked um, and, and they do quite well. Now, we may, because we have such a strong channel catfish population and white catfish population in Lake Anna, it seems like the blues haven't been able to really take off like they have in some other water bodies. But we prefer that if people don't move fish around, it's illegal to move fish around. Um, so a blue catfish is just one example of a, a fish in Lake Anna now, that, like snakeheads, that we didn't stock, that we prefer were not here. But they're here because people illegally move fish. Um, but anyway. Why do we not want them here? Is there a... Well, we 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 think we have a pretty good formula, you know, for Lake Anna for managing the fishery resource here, mm -hmm. and you know, it typically doesn't involve blue catfish and it doesn't involve okay. snakeheads, um, just because the bass fishery is, is going really well, and we prefer not to have anything sort of tamper with that. Even though, at least in some of our studies in the Potomac and Rappahannock rivers, it doesn't seem like snakeheads are bad, but we still don't know that the end, end product. So we just, bottom line is we just don't want people moving fish around. Um, you know, and when it comes to blue cats, people are moving them everywhere as well. Moving both those fish is now a class one misdemeanor uh, in Virginia. So, um, so it's criminal. Highly discourage that. Yeah. It's criminal. To, why, this could be a dumb question, but why would someone and, and how would they go about introducing a blue cat or something else into Lake Anna? Well, they go catch one somewhere, say the Rappahannock River, uh, and maybe they live on Lake Anna or they fish on Lake Anna a lot, and they want to catch blue catfish on Lake Anna. I mean, they're going to get big. Um, the state record blue cats are 150 pounds, so they get bigger wow. channels. And, um, you know, uh, to some people, that trophy, uh, catching a really, really huge fish has, has a certain draw to it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and – they just want them, you know, they, they, they don't want to drive to wherever they're driving to to catch them. They'd rather have them right here in their backyard. So they want to move them. So that's what they do. Wow, but, but moving fish like that now is a misdemeanor. Well, moving any stock, stocking a live fish in any water body in Virginia without a permit is illegal. Okay. But that, and that's a class three. But what we elevated, we have a certain kind of bad list of species. We really don't want people moving around and blue cast and snakeheads are on that list. Hey, what's up, everybody? Just a quick 30 second update about what's going on here at Lake Anna right now. Today, there are 61 homes for sale here at Lake Anna, 61. The breakout for that is 31 of those are waterfront homes, so they're sitting right on the water. 30 of them are water access homes, close to the water, but not sitting right on it. The average sales price right now for the 61 that are for sale is 1.1 million. For the waterfronts, the average is 1.6 million. And for your water access homes, the average is about $530,000. Now, of the 61 homes for sale, only like 30 of those are actually built right now. For the water access homes, the homes that are close to the water but not sitting right on the water, only 12 of those are actually built right now. The rest of them are new construction homes, homes that are to be built. What does this mean for you if you're thinking about selling or you are a seller? Now's a great time to sell a home here at Lake Anna. Why? Because of the supplies are so low, sellers are getting top dollar. Low supply means high sales price. If you're a buyer, things are getting better. Your borrowing interest rates are now in the mid sixes. Last year they were in the mid sevens, they're improving. And your choices, your home supply numbers are actually increasing, more to choose from. A month or two ago, the number here of, of homes for sale were down in the fifties, we're now up to 61, so good news. All right, now back to my interview with John Odenkirk. Cindy, is that what you guys called her? That was the channel cat. Yeah. Right, the channel cat. Yeah. Do you know approximately what depth you know, she was, she was deep there. that, that our, our gill nets are designed to, uh, to fish near the bottom and, okay. and that 
that I believe it was probably 60 to 70 feet deep in that net set. Interesting. And that's right at the discharge point where the water's well, coming out of the... In, in the quarry itself, the old quarry. When you say old quarry, what, what was there a rock quarry yeah. there before the lake was dug? Yeah. Interesting. And how deep down is that quarry now? It's it's like, it's the deep, some of the deepest parts of the lake down there. In the dam, 70 to 80 feet in most cases. Out nearby the dam, right? Yeah. And you dive? I do. You ever seen any uh, any big fish down when you were diving? No. Nah, you're probably not going that deep, are you? No, nah, generally not. You can't see anything. Even with a light, you can't see anything diving in Lake Anna. That's what I've heard. Once you get below about 30 feet, even down lake, it, it's it's real difficult to see much. Um, so typically when I'm diving, I'm diving on the fish reefs, um, so artificial habitat structures okay. that uh, some, some anglers and guides have put out over the years in the lake that we've worked with. Dominion Power's done some. And what we're trying to do is is we call brush up or create some physical habitat in the lake yeah. uh, for, for fish to have a nursery area, for young fish to hide, for some for people to go to catch fish, the larger fish is a good ambush place. Um, so it's, it's, it's desirable to have, you know, these different habitat features in a lake. And a lot of times reservoirs are kind of scrubbed clean of that habitat when they're constructed. Mm -hmm. And then also over time, what's left tends to break down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so that's, there's a, there's a, it's, phenomena people refer to when they manage reservoirs about reservoirs aging and losing productivity over mm -hmm. time. And what's amazing about Lake Anna is we really haven't seen that. I mean, here we are, you know, 1972 with Hurricane Agnes, the lake filled ahead of schedule. And we're basically, you know, half a century at Lake Anna. And, and right now, in my mind, the lake is as productive and the fishing's as good as I've ever seen it. And I've been, I've been here since 1989. Really? It's phenomenal right now, and, and I'm like, it's not like I'm taking credit for it. It's just I'm I was going to say that's thanks, thanks to you. This is on your watch. I'm just I'm watching it happen, and it's wonderful. You know, it's uh, it's it's a blessing to be able to to be here and and, and do these these great times at Lake Anna. It is, and in, in, in a minute, I want to I want to get into your thoughts about why you, you think it's getting better and sure. better vis a vis some of the other lakes. But I, I, I just for my own benefit and for the benefit, I'm sure of some of the listeners, I want to just back up a bit. Yeah. Can you? You're a government employee, correct? Right. Commonwealth of Virginia. Yep. And the agency you work with is now called Department of Wildlife Resources. Wildlife. That's D W R. Yep. Okay. What What is the mission of the of that agency that you work for? Yeah, I'm just I'm glad you asked that because we are, or our, our mission, our goal is, and I can't recite our mission statement to you, but basically the bottom line is, we want to promote outdoor recreation whether it's hunting or fishing or boating we want to promote that recreation we want to promote people do it safely and we want to be able to conserve the natural resources for our use and for future generations use so essentially it's it's if you break it down it's kind of twofold it's 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 you know I mean, and when my world, it's even easier because I'm, I'm on the fisheries side of mm -hmm. it and my, I'm, I'm managing the aquatic ecosystems. So number my, and, and we're a hook and bullet agency still. Unlike most states, we still receive our funding primarily or almost exclusively from people that partake in the resource. So that is people that own a boat and title a boat, uh, pay that fee, or you buy a hunting or a fishing license and the other, you know, uh, associated licenses that go along with that. Like if you're a deer hunter, you buy, you know, a small game plus a big game, plus you buy like a muzzleloader and all that stuff. So we get, you know, we get some good revenue from deer hunters like me um, because you're buying numerous licenses but besides that uh, except for this little bit of sales tax on this outdoor equipment that's still tied to the outdoor recreation mm -hmm. we don't get general fund money wow and so so the bulk of your agency's yeah. money is coming from the licenses and fees and hunting registrations from, from what we call sportsmen or boaters people that hunt and fish and and boat and yet 
we're mandated by the legislature, by law, to manage all wildlife in the state. And most of that stuff's not hunted or fished for. Bald eagles, threatened and endangered species, mussels, um, all these critters, salamanders, wow. you name it, box turtles. And we all love these. I mean, I stopped on the way here today and pick a box turtle up by the road so I can get squashed. You know, it's probably oh. a 30 or 40 year old box turtle. But, you know, nobody's paying for that stuff except for wow. the people that hunt and fish and boat. Uh, so it, it, we do, there are some grants out there where we get, you know, certain money for, you know, species and peril and things like that. But the bottom line is in Virginia, um, unlike some states, we have not gone to a more broad funding base for our resource agency. At some point, at some, and that was the idea behind this name change, was that, you know, people for years, you know, were game and fish, game and fish, game mm -hmm, and fish. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're more than game and fish. And, and, and that's, you know, why we're DWR now, because we're all wildlife resources. Fascinating. How, if you know, how big is, is that agency in terms of number of people? We're talking 500,000? Yeah, our, our, our maximum employment level, last time I, I looked, which was a long time ago, we were around 500. I could be, I could be off by you know, 10, 20% either way on that at this point, but we're in that neighborhood. <clears throat> you guys have a lot of territory to cover for that few of few employees it's not a lot of people it's a big state well it's a bit yeah i mean i've got 12 counties and it's it's mike osles the other biologist with me and me we're the two biologists for 12 counties 12 counties yeah. can you recite the 12 or most of the 12 most <laughs> of the 12 it's you it, got it, louisa it, orange it's basically well actually louisa is my is our partners in the southern district of my my work area so i've got i go as far north as fairfax Wow, I'm okay. all the way down and Lake Anna is the southern edge of my district. Okay. So I've got orange and I've got uh Spotsy. Spotsy, right? Right. Uh but John Harris has Louisa, but I've been managing the lake since whenever his time began. So um and then I go as far west as Skyline Drive. Okay. Uh, so I've got it's what's neat about my work area is I go I go from the mountains. You know, I've got brook trout. Like I'm, I'm after this meeting today, I'm going back to uh, Harris Hollow in the Rush River in Rappahannock County to talk about a trout stream uh, situation we have up there. So I got to go from brook trout um, to tidewater. You know, some days I'll be out on the tidal river wow. tomorrow. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's pretty cool. So do you have Albemarle then and Green? So that's that's John Harris's district. He's a southern okay. district, uh, southern uh, yeah district in our work here. Do you go up region. towards like Front Royal over, over the mountain? Now you're over in the valley, and that's a separate work area too. Okay, yeah. so you're kind of Spotsylvania Orange, and then going up right. towards Northern Virginia. Yep, interesting. Okay, so that's DWR, and then more narrowly speaking, your job is, in a nutshell. Just for the for the folks, manage the aquatic resources of my district. So whether that's a pond, a lake, a stream, a big reservoir, um, you know, figure out what's going on and, and manage it the best you can. So you're you're exclusively focused on the aquatic, yes, bodies. Exclusive. In other words, yeah. you're not, um, you know, birds or you know, deer or anything like that. Are there other people who kind of focus on that? Yeah. Okay. And so once in a while, if they need help with a project, we'll go over and help them. Sometimes we'll pull them to us if we've got a big project. So, you know, and I, it's stuff we're all interested in. But generally speaking, you know, it's like not in my position description to other than I'm, I'm supposed to be helping divisions when they need help and I can give them help. But other than that, you know, I, I'm not worried about bear biology or eagle biology. We have people right, that right. do that. Okay. Uh, and roughly how many lakes are we talking about within your 12 counties that you're focused on? Um, I've got about 25 reservoir, public fish reservoirs, whether they're owned by a municipality, our agency, uh, or Dominion Power, different examples why people, you know, we only have two natural lakes in all of Virginia. So basically everything in Virginia is a reservoir that was created by somebody for some purpose and has to be managed, hopefully, because, you know, for fishing is either a primary or secondary use. Did you just say that there are only two natural lakes in the entire state of virginia yeah, exactly that is crazy 
every other lake man-made yep so when you say reservoir you mean a man-made body yeah. of water. even a pond is technically a reservoir but we just we call them lakes or ponds instead it's always saying reservoir so size wise how does lake anna fare um amongst the 25 reservoirs that that you are focused on it's far and away my biggest resource which is one of the reasons i, I we survey it annually it's that important not just because of its sheer size but because of its economic value um the tourism the guides that make their living there the the, the stores the outfitters you know it's just it's a very very high visible um high impact resource that pulls a lot of people especially in the spring you know we have a lot of uh, northern people making the trip down you know mm -hmm. out of state with their boats to fish lake anna mm -hmm. um so it's 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 very important from a recreational economic standpoint you say surveyed annually what, what does that mean so when we normally when we do our, our we set up our, our sampling um which you know for bass you know, largemouth bass is the bread and butter fish worldwide you know doesn't matter where you are largemouth bass is the fish that attracts the most attention and so that's where we spend a lot of our time because again we're beholden to our our you know who's paying our salary and, mm -hmm. and we want to number one make fishing good number two conserve the resource so hopefully those things are going to you know overlap not always but most of the time and so what we're doing out every year on lake anna is we're doing boat electrofishing surveys for largemouth bass uh, almost a full week at least three days usually it's the last week of april every year and we've done it that way for now for almost 30 years and and what that does is it gives boat us electro fishing boat electro fishing yeah so we use a a, a large john boat with a generator in it and a special pulse box and it takes a dc raw current like you'd use to power you know a skill saw or something okay. and that just turns that power this pulse box turns that power into something designed to stun fish not to hurt them but just to momentarily stun them and that is in fresh water that is the most uh, highly regarded and and most used survey tool you know in our whole profession and has been for the better part of a century and, and what that if you do it right now anything anytime you collect data about anything uh there are biases associated with that data mm -hmm. or how you collect that data uh, what we try to do is minimize those biases and so what we're interested in is the abundance of bass and the size structure those are the two big things that we're interested in how many are there and what size are they what's what's the size structure from which we can infer other things about the population and the fish electrofishing by its nature is a shallow water technique so it's it's no good out in 10 20 30 you know whatever feet of water it's good in maybe five or six feet of water max and so when are the bass shallow you know typically when they're getting ready to spawn so that's when they're vulnerable so that's when we have our best representative time or window to get a good snapshot of that population so that's why we're always generally choose the last week of april because that's when the fish are tend to be shallow and when shallow is what, less than 10 feet yeah five feet? less less than six feet generally yeah a lot of times okay. they're two three feet um and they're either looking to make a bed or you know on a bed or whatever and uh, we're not disrupting the spawning uh we're just um <laughs> we wouldn't want to disrupt the spawning. We, we net the fish and, and we measure them and we put them back. So, uh, so the point of this is in the spring you are you are studying the fish population. Right. The, the, you said size and structure. Yep. Of the largemouth bass. Of the largemouth bass. And is the electrofishing focused exclusively on the largemouth bass, or are you looking at other species? Nah, all we're looking for is largemouth bass. That's all we've ever collected with our electrofishing. Um, until the advent of somebody illegally releasing snakeheads in the lake about six seven years ago and now we collect snakeheads because that's species of interest as well and you typically collect them in the spring where you're going to find largemouth so those are the two top tier predators in the lake in the littoral zone that's the shallow water zone near the shoreline areas 
Do you do the electrofishing on both sides of the lake? We do not. We, we don't. We don't stock or do any surveys on the hot side. Why is that? Demand. Well, it's not public. There's no public ramp there, mm-hmm. or, or you know, somebody that's just driving down the road with their boat can launch a boat. True. True. Um, and so because of that, it's because again because the, the way that we're funded, we are funded. We're mm-hmm. a user fee agency, and and people on the hot side aren't funding us to do their you know survey that lake. Interesting. So your focus is on the public side of the Correct. lake. And, and always has been. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it would be like somebody asking us to come out and survey their farm pond. It's like, well, there's consultants that can do that. And uh, we, it's hard for us to justify spending fishing license dollars to survey. Interesting. Um, now, when it, we do make exceptions in areas like homeowner associations. Okay. Occasionally, if we have time available and we get a request from, say, uh, Fawn Lake, something like that, or Lake mm-hmm. of the Woods, say, hey, you know, we, we're having problems with our fishery resource, you know, and we because those people are obliged to buy fishing licenses, even though it's not open to the public, right? I will still try to give them as much technical support as I can. And we do that with the hot side as well, because D- Dominion Power is, is by their, their, their permit requirements dictate that they conduct surveys on the hot side um, quarterly. They're out there four times a year. And, and the good thing about Dominion's data, um, even though some of the stuff they do, I wouldn't necessarily have picked that time of year to do it, but it's a great temporal data set, meaning we have a timeline of data consi- can take in the same consistent way for decades. And so that gives us a n- more insight, not just to the hot side, but as a cold side as well. So we, we, every year when they submit that report, we get to look at that report and make sure that things on the hot side, because we're still, you know, we, we, we still want fishing to be good on the hot side. It's not mm-hmm. like we just want to completely ignore it, but we just, we're not spending time surveying it you know, like we, we, we don't have enough time to do. And I mentioned that window of time, basically from mid-April to mid-May is, is when we've got a month to get all of our bass surveys done in those 25 lakes, which of course not every lake is going to get done because mm-hmm. we have other stuff to do too, besides just do bass surveys and lakes for a solid month. I mean, I, I would like to be doing nothing for a solid month, but every day being on a boat doing bass surveys, but we don't have the people in the time to do that. So we have to prioritize every year. And out of those 25 some lakes, we pick uh, maybe six or eight that are going to get done that year. And then mm-hmm. the rest get done either other, every other year, every third year. Some lakes like in Culpeper, maybe uh, Mountain Run get done every five years or six mm-hmm. years. Lake Annie gets done every year. Because I mean, so it's a popular place for the residents of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And just a quick pause in case there's somebody listening and they don't understand some of the terminology here. Of course, you know, Lake Anna, big man-made lake early 70s and to support the operations of the power plant you've used the word dominion a few times dominion is the company the energy company here that now operates and regulates the operation here at lake anna the north north anna power station the lake was made it supports the operations of the power plant we've been talking about private side public side the lake was split into two completely independent and basically two separate bodies of water cold side warm side one side, the water comes into the uh, the power plant, does its thing. There's another podcast episode about how all that works if anybody wants to watch it. But then the discharge side, the water comes out about 14 or 15 degrees warmer onto the, quote, private side. And that's what you've been talking about. Uh, the public side is public access. And that's why you guys focus there. Right. Um, anyone uh, from the state, anyone from the nation can show up and, and use the waters in the public side. Private side is for residents only or, or their guests. And that's why you have less focus there. Right. Okay. Um, the electrofishing, I just, I know this is probably a question people have. It sounds like it doesn't, doesn't harm the fish. It stuns the fish. I know some people are probably concerned about that. So stun as in now the fish are unconscious or they're just confused enough for you to net them. Like mechanically, how does that process work? It's interesting. It is interesting. 
Uh, well, so I, yeah, I started to talk about the pulse box. So what the, what the pulse box does, and these are very fancy pieces of equipment. They're very expensive. And they take that raw AC power and they pulse DC it. So our boat set up, it's an aluminum boat and, and the, the hull of the boat is the cathode or the negative. And we have these two boom arrays that have uh, metal cables on them that mm -hmm. hang off the front and those are our anodes so yeah the boat's the negative the positive are our probes and hanging out in front of the boat and this pulse dc current sets up a field where the electrons are flowing towards the anodes mm -hmm. or the booms when and we have a, a big deck up there with a rail around it that we can lean against with long handled dip nets mm -hmm. and, and and the fish when they get in the field they're it, it, they're immobilized but as the the current pulses through the fish uh it it, it creates it's called a galvanotaxis which is a forced swimming motion so they're they're swimming in line with the electron motion and that they orient towards the booms toward the, the positives and they're they're typically upside down and they just sort of they're just pulled almost like the tractor beam you know in the wow star wars or star trek again gearhead there but um yes and, and at that point they're really easy to net up and put we have a big 75 gallon live well and if you a lot of times if you're not fast on the net you know they come out of it second or two they come out of it and they're gone um so it's that you know it's, it's that, quick it's quick now it's all these factors affect uh, i mentioned the biases water temperature is a big effect on on how fish get hit the size the bigger the fish the, the harder they get hit um the conductivity of the water has a lot to do with it we can't shock in salt water because it's too conductive but in some waters that are really hmm. soft um there's not enough to, to make it you know so it's uh it, there's a lot of things that go into it but generally speaking the fish are only immobilized for seconds um how big of an of area in the water is affected it's a, about five or six feet radius around each of the two booms Oh, so it's pretty small. It's a pretty small area. So sometimes, you know, I, I've been known to swim in Lake Anna. If I were to accidentally swim through this area when this was happening, would it immobilize a person? Would it immobilize me? Yes. You'd have to be really close to the boat, though. But it, right. it would, it will, and, and has. We've, we've shocked just about everything at um, one time or another. And uh, Accidentally hit each other? Ac yes. Well, it's, it's different. The boat, the boat feels good. Shocking. Now the backpack unit is not bad because the backpack unit we use is is, is about you know two, one or two amps and we're like three hundred volts maybe DC. But the boat unit's putting out we're usually running about six to seven amps at usually about a thousand volts DC. Wow, so that gets your attention and and yeah. It, it, so when you do this in the spring, how many different areas do you go do it in the lake so to get a good sample? We, we do a up, upper lake, uh, mid lake, and then lower lake. You spend a day at each typically. Okay, um, so three spots. Yeah. Okay. Because the lake is a giant trophic gradient, meaning the productivity is dramatically different at the top of the, you know, where the water comes in up, say, 522 bridge mm -hmm. uh, or down towards, you know, the dam. As people know that know the lake, you know, your visibility is just it's so different and everything. Very different. The biomass is different. Um, and so, yeah. Um, the, the, the mid lake region to me is the best nexus of sort of habitat and productivity this if, for personally when i go fishing in the mid in lake anna i, I would normally fish the mid lake region okay and mid lake being near kind of 208 bridge yeah, that would from you 20, from 208 up um to say stubs uh, above the splits on on the pamunkey side and then the north anna bridge uh, above rose valley um Oh, 719 bridge on that side yeah so those are some of the best spots you think? Think, and I you're think. doing shore and deep or uh, well stri i mean for deep fish even i mean the stripers and the the hybrid stripers and the, the wildline saw guy they move around quite a bit but generally speaking you know, that area of the lake is it, you know 
for most of the year is going to be good. Maybe not during the extreme summer when they might be down, you know, lower lake um, or, or like winter when they might be way up lake. But for, it's just, that's a pretty solid area to target. So if someone was listening to this, they were thinking about fishing a Lake Anna. They never had. Is then they wanted to come down and spend one day fishing. Is that where you'd send them? Mid Lake yeah. 208 up to yeah. just go to the state park. Yeah, great place to fish. Where right. Creek, anywhere up in that area. Awesome. And you'd recommend it by boat versus shoreline fishing? It just depends, really. You have to ask them, kind of get get to them, you know, what's their experience level? What are they looking to catch? How are they going to fish? Are they going to keep the fish they catch? I mean, all the things that go in to try to dictate, you know, you want to try to get somebody the best experience. What your possible. goals are, yeah. right? Right, right. But, um, yeah, it's hard to go wrong. I mean, shore fishing at Lake Anna can be challenging because there's not a lot of options. You've got Dyke 3 and you've got the State Park. And other than that, you know, there's really not a lot of shore fishing options. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. kayaks are probably the, the, the real way to go, unless you're a hardcore bass angler, in which case you're going to have a bass boat. Sure. Interesting. H how many different species of known fish are there in Lake Anna? Hmm. I... <sighs> I, normally when I do a summary every year or because mm -hmm. our gillnet catches catch pretty much a cross section of the community. We see almost everything that's out there in our gillnets. And I'm, we usually have close to two dozen species. Uh, generally it's going to be mm -hmm. around 21, 22. And there's probably one or two we're missing like American eels. We know they're there, but we don't usually see them in our nets. Um, so you could safely say there's probably 25 or more species of fish in Lake Anna. Wow. But the most common ones that you're going to see and catch are probably what half a dozen or so. Yeah. What What are those? So the shoreline species that are super common that everybody sees are largemouth bass, of course. Mm -hmm. um, no smallmouth here. No, I've never seen one. Not to say that you might not find. Remember going back to the alligator. Yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. It's possible to see almost anything anywhere. Sharks, octopus. Right. But I've never seen a smallmouth in Lake Anna. Okay. Um, not to say that the upper end of one of the creek arms where, you know, smallmouth might be found in that, in that creek uh, before at the head, above the head of the reservoir mm -hmm. and during a storm, you know, you could see one getting washed in there, but generally not. Uh, so bluegill, largemouth, um, white perch are the most common fish based on our net surveys. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Um, there's just there's white perch white and they, t they tend to be smaller, right? About the size of your hand. Yeah. Yeah. And Lake Anna, nine inch white perch is almost a trophy. Um, so. <laughs> I caught a trophy perch. Um, is there such a thing? Well, we, we have trophy citation fish categories for right. almost everything. So, yeah, I think they need to be a pound and a quarter to be, you know, certified as a right. outstanding catch. <laughs> you know, you've got yourself a monster white purse there. Um, but, yeah, it's a, and uh, so you know, white, white, uh, catfish are quite abundant in Lake Anna. Yep. Channel catfish and white catfish. Lake Anna has one of the white catfish is our largest native catfish. Even channels, which most people think of as native, mm -hmm. are naturalized. Well, large, I mean, most of the fish that we know and hold dear to our hearts are not native. You know, so in Lake Anna, that would be like largemouth bass, not native. Black crappie. I mean, that's a very popular food fish in Lake Anna. So, you know, you got the largemouth fishery, which is like almost 99% catch and release. And you got the crappie fishery, which is almost all, you know, meat fishery, unless they're too mm -hmm. small. Uh, so, you know, you look at, manage these things different, but, but yeah, crappy, not native, um, bluegill, red ear, red ear sunfish are in Lake Anna. They, they do very well, especially down lake. They get really big. People call them shell crackers. They're a neat fish. They're kind of like bluegill. They just get bigger and they have a little more color on them. Um, so yeah, all, none of those fish are native. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre when you think about it, you know, um, but the, the newcomers, like the snakeheads, the blue cats, they're the one causing the most controversy. Uh, but the others have been here for 150 years. So people think of them, they, a lot of times they'll lump them in as a native fish, but we call them beneficial naturalized. Um, 
But, but since this is a, I mean, this might be a dumb question, but since this is a man-made lake, there are, is there are zero that are natural and native, right? Pretty much. So when, if you look at what we catch in our net surveys, uh, like gizzard chad, that sort of ubiquitous forage fish, that's a native fish. Um, they're in all their rivers, streams everywhere. Uh, uh, white suckers, another native fish that you'll find in Lake Anna. Uh, so it, from a fisheries perspective, you know, white suckers are sort of like, you know, they're, they're not even on the radar. Gizzard chat are important because they're a forage for, for larger fish. Um, even though in, 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 a, in a perfect world, you know, take a small farm pond uh, or in Lake Anna, if you just had largemouth bass and bluegill, you know, bluegill being the insectivores eating off the shoreline and essentially, you know, converting that primary productivity into some kind of fish tissue mm -hmm. and the largemouth bass eating the bluegill, mm -hmm. done. You, you, you know, you're, you have a good working food chain. But, you know, you throw gizzard chat in the picture and that just makes the bass, you know, essentially fatter and happier. Bluegill don't like it so much because the, the gizzard chat are planktivores and they're, they're filtering zooplankton from the lake, kind of sapping its primary productivity, if you will. Um, so a lot of times we don't prefer gizzard chat, especially in smaller lakes, but a lot of times we get them and it's not much we can do about it anyway. So it's just kind of something you live with. Um, in Anna, which is kind of unique for a lot of reservoirs, uh, larger reservoirs, has three different clupeids. So you have the gizzard chat is number one, and that's the largest and the most abundant. But, but you also clupeid. Clupeid is what the is shad. Clupeid? Sorry about that. The, Sorry. The, the family that includes shad and herring, okay. uh, which are forage fish. So these are fish that are meant to, you know, they're basically they're they're on this earth to get eaten. Okay. <laughs> Bottom of the food chain. Yeah. That's. But again, they're they, they're important, and you hear a lot about uh, menhaden offshore. You know, omega three protein. Some people, it's it's a huge mm -hmm. controversy right now um, because the this one company is just sucking up all these menhaden out of the ocean, and he's got monstrous nets and rendering them into like fish oil. Mm -hmm. And 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 they're like, well, you know, this, these fish aren't that valuable. Nobody else wants them. Well, the problem is they're like the link between primary productivity of an aquatic system and fish that people do really like, like striped bass or tuna or largemouth bass or whatever the case is. Um, so it's that link. These these forage fish, these clupeids are the link, you know, to strain the zooplankters, taking that productivity, putting on, you know, that oily mass that's so productive, uh, and then allowing those other fish to grow and, and reproduce and, and, and give us food or recreation. Uh, so in that respect, they're very important. So in Lake Anna, there's no menhaden in Lake Anna, but you do have the gizzard shad, you have threadfin shad, which is really neat because we would love to have threadfin shad in all the lakes that we manage because they're, they're ideal forage fish. They're just like almost identical to gizzard shad, but they just don't get as big. Uh, the problem these is- these are all pretty small, right? Well, yeah, the maximum size of a threadfin shad is gonna be like five inches. Okay. Gizzard shad get up to like three pounds, you know, like 16 or 17 inches. That's wow. a, and it's not like even a larger striped bass is gonna have trouble eating a, you know, a three pound gizzard shad. But I mean, when you see quote unquote minnows, Right. And the, is that so minnows? A lot of times there is a family of minnows called Cyprinidae, Cyprinids or minnows. And we do have a lot of minnows in Lake Anna, like spot tail shiners, um, things like that. That, that yeah, you that see them in the real shallow water, real shallow water. Now, people could be seeing, you know, immature game fish like bluegill or, or largemouth bass. They could be seeing white perch and, you know, and anything. A lot of times when anybody sees a small fish, it's a minnow. Uh, but right. they're, but they're but they're it's like uh, there are specific species of fish that are technically minnows, um, not just because they're small. I mean, maximum size of a lot of cyprinids is you know three inches, so that's an adult. Um, yeah, right. I get it. I get it. Okay, so but we've got five or six or seven or so that we see commonly. Yeah, I think a minute ago you mentioned was it American eels? Right. My grandfather used to talk about 
he would he was a heavy duty fisherman here in 70s and 80s and swore up and down that he caught eels my father was with him a couple times when it happened would that but since then you know you know both have said they've never seen one never caught one would that have been the beginning an american eel is that what that or were there different types of eels no, that were here? Definitely. Any eel caught in freshwater in Virginia is American eel. Uh, it's a native fish, and it's it's a, a really unique fish because of its life history. A lot of the fish that we know, and we've already talked a little bit about striped bass and, and shad, not that the ones in Lake Anna are anadromous, uh, meaning uh, they live in the saltwater and spawn in freshwater, but the ones in, say, the Rappahannock River or the North mm-hmm. Anna River below Lake Anna or the Pamunkey River, mm-hmm. the York River – a lot of times in the spring, you'll see those anadromous fish coming in from the from the ocean to spawn, and then they you know, the adults go back, and then the young grow up in the estuary, and then they go out, and then years later they come back and complete that life cycle. Mm-hmm. Well, the the really cool thing about American eels is they're exact opposite. They, they spend their entire lives in freshwater, and then they go all the way to the South Atlantic Ocean, spawning, and then they're gone. Wow. So, and and they fight to get back up to their so their headwaters you know, where they're sort of imprinted on, which is pretty cool. And so American eels are really good at getting around obstacles too. You know, people talked about snakeheads moving across land. The snakehead's got nothing on American eel. American eel can, can wiggle way better than a snakehead can on, on any kind of wet wet ground. Uh, so like for years at, at Embry Dam in Fredericksburg, before it was blowing up on a Rappahannock, just a mile above the head of the tide, we had American eels would get around that routinely by during storms. They would like either slither up the face of the dam or they would wow. slither around the dam like snakes. So it's not even though at Anna on the North Anna power station there at the dam, there's there's no uh, there's there's nothing for uh, passage. And the big thing is, is to provide passage for these these organisms trying to get from one place to another to complete their life history. Mm-hmm. Um, but Anna was it, it was not deemed at that time, you know, the North Anna River and in the late 60s, early 70s, who, the, you know, people did not see the need to put a f- eel passage or any kind of fish passage device on the North Anna Dam. So there is none there. Um, but the eels are still, we still see eels on Lake Anna, and, and that's because they're even, that's a pretty high dam. But given time and given, you know, uh, some proclivity of proper and, and wet conditions, those eels can get around that dam and, and, and turn up in Lake Anna. They're just not going not to be nearly as many as if there was some sort of passage feature on that dam. What's the American eel look like? They look like a snake, you know. Um, they, I used to catch them when I was a kid. They're, they're pretty aggressive. Uh, it, a lot of people, they're a delicacy in a lot of places. And uh, they're just kind of a grayish. They can get, we see them, they, they change colors as they, they kind of grow from the juvenile to adult stage. But uh, adult American eels are kind of a slate gray um, on top, and they have a white underbelly. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're a neat fish. They really are. How big? You, average? A, a mature, typically the females are the ones that are going to go highest in the watershed. And even when we're doing trout stream work, mm-hmm. um, like the stream I mentioned I'm going to later today, the Rush River up in Rappahannock County, right, right up in Shenandoah National Park, we'll see a female American eels almost 20 years old, probably you know close to three, not three feet long, two feet long, two maybe a little more than two feet long, and probably weighing in about maybe three or four pounds. Wow. So that's so, a big eel on a tiny stream. A couple, three inches in yeah, diameter. Yeah. And they're just, they're waiting, they're up there waiting for the little bomb to go off inside their head to tell them time to go. <laughs> <laughs> but they, it doesn't sound like they end up on the end of a fishing hook very often. They, well, they are aggressive and people do catch them. I mean, I, you know, aggressive in the sense of 
going after going after bait yeah i mean bait. typically you know you, you see you think of kids fishing you earthworms you know and mm -hmm. a split shot and a bob or whatever mm -hmm. and um that's how i used to catch them when i was growing up and and that's how you know people fishing for trout a lot of times if we're using natural bait like mm -hmm. like worms night crawlers they'll, they'll catch american eels up in those little streams interesting all right well back to your spring survey right that you were, you were talking about one of the methods to monitor the fish habitat right. and what's going on mainly pointed at largemouth bass yep. was the electrofishing is there anything else that you guys do in the spring in terms of fish habitat well ha habitats well no not really. not habitat the fish fishery right fishery evaluations no in the spring it's, it's basically all bass 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 so you you stun them they are netted yep. manually yep. they come in and then what do you do with them okay i've got them in the net what happens put them in a live well put them and, in the live well we're and done you, with that timed run and then you take them somewhere no we just we continue our or we continue on the transect basically okay. we're, we're doing the fixed transects and we continue on the transect until we're done with the timed what's a transect so it's, it's basically a reach of shoreline that, that we survey every year okay okay and once we're done once once and sometimes it takes a little longer a little less time but but instead of actually having our sample um our, our discrete sample unit as a measure of shoreline distance we measure it as in a seconds how many seconds have you spent okay. and so our unit of effort is typically uh going to be some block of time and when we're done with that block of time we shut everything off we measure all the fish weigh them if we're going to weigh them tag them if we're going to tag them whatever we do to them mm -hmm. and then release them all um so you're weighing them you're documenting the weight the right. type of fish right you mentioned tagging is it just a um, a physical tag or is this like a, a radio emitter tag that I can follow the fish? We use all of these at different times and different systems really? to determine different things. Um, and Anna, the only fish that we're tagging right now, putting physical tags on, mm -hmm. Are, are the largemouth bass and that only on certain larger fish we're putting a what's called a pit tag passive integrated transponder it's the same kind of tag you might put in a, in one of your, your dogs or cats mm -hmm. as a way to um category you know if it gets picked up as a stray it's a very small it's a chip and people call them chips that, okay. that, that generally shaped kind of like a a little oblong like an extended egg kind of and uh, mm -hmm. they're, they're 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 only put out information if they're interrogated uh, that's why it's a passive integrated transponder so when you you wave that wand over it and, and activate that tag it sort of wakes it up and that spits out a you know unique alphanumeric code to you and then you, you go back through your data book your files and figure out oh yeah that you know i tagged that bass on such and such and it was such and such blah 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 and then you get that information so and, and the only reason we're doing that now is because lake anna is one of a very few privileged lakes in the state of virginia that we're doing an experimental stocking program um, with these F1 largemouth bass. Now, we don't stock many fish in Lake Anna because everything that's there pretty much are self-sustained through natural reproduction. Like once you get that thing started, you pretty much can walk away and then you just monitor the size structure and the abundance, uh, which is what the big thing I mentioned earlier. And stocking means just in case. Stocking, yeah. Stocking means you're actually putting or planting fish in the reservoir. Uh, for what some design purpose okay and, and so typically that's going to be in a new lake uh, a lake that maybe had some catastrophic event like a fish kill mm -hmm. for whatever reason um or it could be maybe because of um, a harvest you know you're trying to make up some 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 over harvest situation which isn't that common in, in this and around here anymore um or you're maybe trying to do some manipulation where you're trying to get something more out of the fishery and that's the case at lake anna um with a couple things we, we mentioned stocking so you know, 
I, and I'll get back to the F1 largemouth bass, but before we go yeah. on to that, yeah. the other things we're stocking in Lake Anna right now are the striped bass. Okay. And then there's a hybrid striped bass, which is a cross between a striper and a white, which tends to do better in warmer water. Because we got a picture of one of those, habitat, right? Yes, we do. Habitat in Lake Anna is not, there's me with a little hybrid I caught on hook and line. And that's you. That's me. Yep. So that's a hybrid striped bass. Yep. Now, when you say little, are you uh, being sarcastic well, or is no, that? It's is not that... legal yet. It's, it needs to be 20 inches to be legal. And that one was about 17 inches. Legal. In other words, I can take. Right. You're okay. allowed to keep four of those a day. They have to be 20 inches. Stripers and hybrid combined because it is hard for people many times to tell the difference. So we just keep them so there's less confusion and less chance for somebody to run afoul of the law to let them keep four a day of 20 inches or greater. What kind of um, bait? Um, that's curly's using? favorite uh crankbait there I, i'm not sure i can give that out but <laughs> <laughs> and, and curly is a fishing buddy curly's curly's uh, one of our helpers and a fishing buddy extraordinaire on lake anna big shout out to curly yeah so that's a hybrid striper yes pretty and, fish and man. We, we stock those now every year in lake anna at 10 an acre so that's based on the, the public side of the cool side which is 9600 acres so we're putting ninety six thousand hybrids every year and ninety six thousand pure striped bass every year wow and, and so you know a couple you know pushing a quarter million of these and these are pelagic predators pelagic meaning is the open water area of the lake not the shoreline area that's where the bass and bluegill hang out mm -hmm. but the pelagic zone is that open water or you know it's 40 50 60 feet deep mm -hmm. and and you don't have till up i'm not gonna say you're not gonna find largemouth out there but that's not what you think of for largemouth habitat it's it's a large zone of the lake open water mm -hmm. there's a lot of forage remember we mentioned the threadfin shad we mentioned the gizzard shad mm -hmm. we've got the blueback herring is the third forage species so you got all this open water all this forage and generally largemouth bass are not really taking advantage of that habitat so the striped bass and the hybrid striped bass, they're going to take advantage of that habitat and it's going to give uh, a diversification to this resource. So instead of people coming out to Lake Anna just to catch largemouth bass, they can come out and catch striped bass, which, you know, is a fish that most people associate with the bay or the ocean, but they can live just fine in a reservoir. They can't complete their life cycle naturally spawning. So that's why we have to stock them every year. So that's, that's an example of stocking to create a fishery and maintain a fishery that can't be maintained through natural reproduction. But in the case of these F1 large mammals, Cannot be maintained through natural reproduction. Right. Yep. Wow. What, they just don't spawn they, enough? They, I mean, they can't, the habitat's not right. You know, the, uh, okay. the fish, fish, when they spawn, have different strategies, like like large, like centrarchids or sunfish family. They build nests. Bluegill build nests. Largemouth bass, technically sunfish, build nests. They guard those. They lay the eggs. Um, the female lays the eggs. The male fertilizes them. And then the male guards them, chases away nest predators. It's a very structured and regimented process. Strategies. Like the strategy with a striped bass is called broadcast spawning. Hundreds of thousands of eggs are just spewed out in the water column, and then they need to float and drift with the current. Well, there's not a lot of current in Lake Anna, so what's going right. to happen to the eggs? Um, they're going to just settle out in the bottom and get smothered and die. So they, they don't. They, there's there's a lot of things that have to come together. Sometimes you wonder how nature ever does some of this stuff at all. And that, it's like sea turtles nesting on a beach and surviving. You know, it's just some things just boggle your mind that 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 but. but Mother Nature, in many cases, in most cases, is still capable of, of uh, you know, surmounting these obstacles that these creatures face and completing their life history assignments. Interesting. You know, this uh, other photo here of this gentleman with the toboggan and holding four fish. That, that's the aforementioned curly. That is aforementioned curly. Yeah. All right. And what type of fish uh, is he holding there? Those are striped hybrid. Striped, striped, All of them striped hybrids, hybrids also? As well. Same yeah. as you were holding? Yeah, exactly. 
Awesome. And uh, so a moment ago, you were talking about stocking. The F1 largemouth bass. Right. And is is this stocking happening? That photo? is. Those are. So what are we looking at here? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Those are, those are, those are actually hybrids going in right there. But it, it's a good... Um, a good segue for us to remember that um, the F1s are similar to that. We yeah. don't direct release them into that. That's that's at the High Point Boat Ramp where uh, direct stock, release. Yeah, we call ramp stockings or, or, or quick release stockings at boat ramps. Okay. Um, depending on the species and and uh, the situation, boat ramp stockings can be quite successful, as evidenced by the hybrid fishery in Lake Anna right now. We we stock stripers at three ramps, and we stock hybrids at only two ramps because the water's pretty warm when we're stocking the hybrids. Uh, so, and I mean, what we're seeing here is literally it's a giant box on a trailer, yep. uh, full of the fish that you're stocking, and they're and, about one inch, one inch and a half long. Oh, they're little at this time. Yep. All right, so they're yep. babies, yep. and then the 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 hatch is open and they shoot out. Yeah, what you don't see in that picture are the two hours they spent tempering the fish to make sure that the pH and the water temperature were close because when the fish, okay. so those fish shock. many times are coming from out of state. We, we raise a lot of our own fish from our own state hatcheries, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's easier and cheaper for us to put the fish out to commercial hatcheries on bid than we can raise them. We, sometimes we don't have the space to raise uh, certain fish, which is the case with the hybrid stripers. We, we just don't have this, the room or, or the hatchery space to do it so we buy those fish depending on where they come from the water temperature and ph could be dramatically different from our lake water and to avoid shocking them or stressing them slowly uh, we'll slowly temper that water uh to bring it up to, to where they're happy going into that that lake like that and how that interesting very well but in the case of the f1 largemouth yeah we're getting those fish from the truck we just did it like in uh, last week yeah we just did it last week um and we put those in a big, big boat, a pontoon boat kind of thing with big, huge, like 300 gallon tanks on it. Mm -hmm. And then we will motor around slowly with nets, uh, just like being like Johnny Appleseed, just throwing out, you know, a little net full here, a little net full there, trying to really move those fish and, and spread them out, typically along water willow beds or habitat beds where they're going to have a safe sanctuary, a nursery area to, to grow and prosper. And the F1 is a type of striped bass. No, no, that's a, that's a largemouth. This is a large mouth. Yeah. Okay. F1 is, well, F1 is just a reference to the first generation. So an F1 could be, oh, okay. You could be F1 or I could be, but F, but F, what we're stocking, what we're talking about is F1 largemouth bass. Gotcha. And, and what the connotation means is that it's a pure first generation um, from, excuse me, from a pure northern largemouth bass mm -hmm. and a pure Florida largemouth bass. Those are two genetically different species, or actually they're subspecies. Um, and for years in largemouth bass management, there's been a lot of controversy and different opinions about what fish works best where. And as already mentioned, in most waters, a lot of waters where there are largemouth bass, they're not native. Uh, so the, the, the book was sort of yet to be written on what works best and over time through genetic surveys we've determined that most of our bass fisheries or populations are composed of what we call fx mutts they're they're but they're intergrades they have they have a fair amount of florida alleles in their populations so we've said okay well so we're going to stock bass for whatever reason we shouldn't normally stock largemouth bass because you don't need to stock largemouth bass because they reproduce very well on their own but if one of these things happens where you feel you have to stock largemouth bass, then we're going to stock F1s because basically it's what we already have. We already mm -hmm. have intergrades cross between a Florida and a Northern. But the neat thing about 
the, the original, the first generation. I mean, you can have an XX that FX is 40% Florida alleles. You can have an XX that's 60% Florida alleles. So you could so you can kind of think about it. Well, an F1 is a, is a, is 50%, right? Because it's got half of each. Because, mm-hmm. but the thing about an F1 is, is the very first generation has been shown and demonstrated to get larger. In other words, the initial bang for the buck with an FX is pretty much washed out after that first generation. So what we're trying to do at Lake Anna or attempting to see if it's possible is by stocking a limited number of fish every so often, can we get the top end bigger? In other words, we're going to take this artificial fishery, this non-native fish in this reservoir that we created, and we're going to see if instead of having a big fish at Lake Anna be maybe eight pounds, maybe it can be 11 interesting and just those two pounds in the bass world is is huge yeah you can't imagine that the the yeah the power that that is a minute ago you mentioned that you were tagging are you tagging some of these so some of these fish we're getting especially the larger fish that are likely to show up at tournaments we're going to start going to tournament weigh-ins and scanning a lot of these larger oh, fish to see if it's to see if there are some of the fish that we've stocked these f1s so once the chip is in it's invisible yep. it's not like there's a red tag you know on, on a on a tail or something floating right. around like an animal that you right. see and it, can you track the location of those if you wanted to? Is it that type of tag? No, it's not that type. Can't pull up your computer and see where the fish is at any given moment? No, we've used those before with snakeheads or other fish, blue cats, and we're doing different studies. Um, but we're not doing that right now with, with anything like you know. Okay. So spring, monitoring the fishery, primarily the electric electro fishing. And then later in the year, I think right. you mentioned there's kind of one more phase that you go through, and that is... Those are our net surveys. So in the gill, the gill net, surveys, net surveys, we do, and, and whereas in the spring with the shocking, that is a, uh, we call that a sample station methodology. Mm-hmm. We're basically sampling like Dominion does. We're doing the same exact shoreline every year, which has some value. But the other thing, the other way to look at it, and a lot of times scientists will argue about which is better, is other, there's a thing called like pure random sampling, which mm-hmm. is, the thing about pure random sampling is you need a high enough sample size to make it meaningful in case you draw some bad sites. Uh, so what we right. what, when I when I set up the gillnet survey many years ago at Lake Anna, what we tried to do is, is have a, a truly representative random survey, and I stratified the lake by upper portion and a lower portion using 208 as my cutoff, and we randomly select nine sites and upper and nine sites and lower, and then we have these 200 foot gillnets that eight have eight different mesh panels so that the, the, the size of the mesh panel dictates the general range of fish that you can expect to catch in those okay um, and so th- these are 200 foot nets that each have uh, eight 25 foot panels so we, we can expect when you say 200 feet you mean 200 square feet 200 no they're 200 by 200 feet long by eight feet deep 200 long by eight feet deep because like a long rectangular yep, net very long and they have a lead core line and then a, okay. a, poly, a poly float line. So they, they suspend in the water okay. um, and perfectly vertical situation. And you go down pretty deep, I and, think you and said they earlier. they set on the bottom, yeah. They sit on the bottom. So wherever we draw, so we'll draw you know our sites and then in, depending on where that site is, we'll just set the net perpendicular to the shoreline and it'll be marked with uh, orange buoys. I'm sure a lot of people maybe listening to this have, have seen those. And usually it's early December when we're gonna be out there doing this. And we'll come along in the morning and fish those nets and then we'll reset them 
the next night so that the mesh is flipped so that we're not biasing uh, our, our catch based on how deep a certain mesh size is. So that, that was one way we, we sought to minimize the bias of these nets. But what we have determined is these nets are very good at sampling the overall community and telling us, because the main thing we're interested in since we're stocking almost a quarter million pelagic predators every year is to make sure that they have enough food to eat because it's possible to stock too many. Um, we'd like to stock as many as we can, as, as long as we can produce them, and not but not stock too many. So for for a long time, I I tweaked the stocking rates because I, I was at Smith Mountain Lake years ago. They kind of they kind of crashed that fishery because there were too many predators, and then then fishing was really bad there for a long time. And I didn't mm. want that to happen at, at Lake Anna. So it took me a long time to sort of settle on this ten acre of each. You know, before we started stocking hybrids, I I got comfortable with like fifteen to twenty stripers an acre was probably the the right ratio because every lake's different you know you have mm -hmm. to kind of it's not it's just one size fits all thing and and then when we were lucky enough to sort of work the hybrids into the schedule um i think 10 and 10 is, is a pretty solid formula for lake anna moving forward so yeah so but the, but the gillnet surveys they tell us you know are, are there a lot of gizzard shad this year are there a lot of blueback herring did we have a threadfin shad kill because they they do uh, they, they can cold stress and die in harsh, harsh winters. Now, we haven't had many harsh winters lately, so the threadfin shad population is, is going gang, bang, gangbusters uh, out here at Lake Anna. So. Um, and, you know, the black crappie, white perch, catfish, the, the gillnet gives us all that information. So we can track all the species abundance over time and uh, size structure and all that stuff. So it's, it's a pretty handy sampling tool. Generally speaking, how is fishing right now at Lake Anna? Huh. <laughs> I love it. Um, Thanks for asking me that. <clears throat> it, it, it's my pleasure to say that, I, in my opinion, fishing at Lake Anna is the best it's ever been. No kidding. I'm in the 50 happy. years the lake has been here. Yeah. Now, see, I, I've, I've heard people say way back, you know, in the late 70s, you know, this was better. I, okay, maybe it was. I can't say it wasn't because I wasn't here then. Uh, but I can say that since 1989, mm -hmm. when I came back from Florida, uh, this lake has not been better than that for bass. Now, for stripers. Habitat has changed over time in the lake. There's no question. We had a, a guy, uh, Walter Villa, did his uh, Keystone Master's Project, Colorado State, here working with us on water quality, striper mm -hmm. habitats. One of the reasons we went to the hybrids, mm -hmm. because the striper habitats, especially adult striped bass, need cool, oxygenated water. Um, do, do you, when you think of cool water, you think of Lake Anna, do they normally, you know, the same sentence? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, so they got to go deep? Yeah, and when, a lot of times if they go deep, they're not going to have oxygen they need. Uh, so that's one of the one of the. Why is that? It's it's it has to do with thermal stratification. A every lake, well, every reservoir. We've already discerned that we don't have any natural lakes here in Virginia for the most part. Right. So these reservoirs all stratify in a different way. Everybody's familiar with you know they're swimming around in the farm pond and it's hot like baking hot at the surface and the, but it's cold and the toes are cold right. Mm -hmm. That's because their toes are probably below the thermocline. Well, the thermocline in the pond is, is a lot shallower than it is in Lake Anna most times. But and because of the in, the plant operations, a lot of times the and that's one of the reasons I think the striped bass population has done as well as it has in Lake Anna because of the the the, the, the water stratification patterns. It's water stratification patterns. Are, it's a very important concept, but people get easily bored because it's kind of. But, but it's important to understand that. Please. That the, the ther most, especially naval people, know about thermoclines. And the thermocline typically is where the, the water changes dramatically for the, temperature. The, the so, temperature. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about the top of a lake and it's hot and you go down a, a foot and it's still pretty hot, you got another foot, it's a little bit cooler, but still pretty hot. Da, 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 da. You get down about whatever, do that a bunch of times. And all of a sudden, wow, it got cooler a lot faster. 
that's the thermocline. And sometimes the thermocline's a foot deep, sometimes it's a meter deep. And then below that thermocline, you have the, the area below the thermocline, which is what's called the hypolimnion. Uh, but the, the thing about the hypolimnion or the hypolimnetic zone is that typically it's very low in oxygen. And that's because most of our reservoirs in this part of the world, when they stratify, they've got all this organic material at the bottom. And, and this is told true for people's farm ponds, Lake mm-hmm. Orange, whatever, Lake of the Woods. And, and underneath the thermocline in the summer, you know, there's no light. You can't you can dive down there. You can't see the hand in front of your face. Um, and so, but there's all this, this activity going on, this, this, uh, this, this breakdown, all this organic material, mm-hmm. and it creates an oxygen demand. And so typically there's almost no oxygen because there's no photosynthesis occurring. There's no agitation. There's no, there's no infusion of, of, of oxygen in this water. And, and you've got this, 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 um, this respiration occurring through this, these microorganisms, this, this organic breakdown. But it's mainly because light isn't getting down there. It's, it's one of the big factors. And, and and the bit of oxygen that is down there is being used up by the organic matter. Right. So, it, the, so the fish that need more oxygen don't survive the, well down that deep. Nobody's there. It's a, it's a dead zone. You hear about the, the bay dead zone. It's a similar thing. And, and because these photos, the, these layers, these thermal layers, one of the unique characters of water is its resistance to mixing. And, and so except for fall turnover, the thing's not going to mix. Mm-hmm. Fall turnover is when everything's isothermal and then it kind of flips. That's what people talk about. Um, turnover it happens once in the spring, once in the fall. But generally, mm. so you got the reverse stratification in the winter, you know, with the warmest waters at the bottom, the summer, the coldest waters at the bottom. But in the winter, at least, you know, there's still going to be oxygen down there. In the summer, there's no oxygen down there. So bottom line is stripers need so you look at smith mountain lake a lake in virginia a reservoir in virginia where stripers do very well and get very large mm-hmm. well they've got much better habitat in terms of oxygen blo- and temperature below their thermocline at smith mountain lake because it's up in the mountains and <laughs> we're not in the mountains um and and but the lower part of the lake you know the plant intake is down there across from the mouth of sturgeon creek they run it through the hot side where we are now and then it comes back in a counterclockwise rotational pattern and and you actually see influences of that pattern you know the whole portion of the lower lake is sort of that it's it's kind of ruled by by that intake operation and that does it's a very very weak stratification in the lower lake so you kind of have this marginal habitat and so i think a lot of the times in the summer you know there's a lot of times they start stripers now they're down around the power plant like two uh mm-hmm. in that area of the lower lake mm-hmm. because if they go upper lake the, the, even though it's more riverine upper lake it's mm-hmm. still more discrete thermal stratification with less oxygen below the thermocline. And that, especially the larger stripers aren't as happy with that. When they're young, they get by better. But one of the, the complaints, you asked, you know, we got off on a little bit of a tangent here talking about the lake has never been better. So th- it's not true for if you like large striped bass, it, it's not better um, because we've lost some habitat over the last 25 years. Uh, and, and so and that's never going to come back. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we're now stocking 50-50 with hybrid mix. Okay. Because they do much better. You have you have it with hybrids, and we're doing it with sawgai too now. And we haven't mentioned it yet, but we, over the years we've stocked walleye, which is a fish people associate with the Great Lakes a lot and the New River in Virginia, uh, mm-hmm. but not typically warm lakes. And that's because they're cool water fish. They don't do great in warm lakes. But the sawgai is a mix between a sauger and a walleye, just like a striped bass hybrid is a mix between a striped bass and a white bass. That, that hybrid vigor that, you know, taking those two species and artificially cross them in a hatchery, look, you know, sounds like a little bit of mad scientist thing going on, but they do very, very well 
in limited habitat conditions. Mm -hmm. So in, in a lake like Lake Anna, saw guys are doing fantastic. We, we still only have a couple of year classes of them out there, mm -hmm. but we're gonna try to get them in there about every two or three years. Uh, since we have that big pelagic zone and all those forage for them to eat, uh, and and the hybrids do so much better in Lake Anna than the stripers do. So we're going to continue stocking the pure stripers as long as we can, as long as we don't have big overt fish kills like Claytor Lakes has had, other southeastern lakes in Tennessee and Carolina have had these catastrophic striper fish kills because in the summer they get what we call the habitat squeeze. The water just gets too warm, oxygen gets too low, and they, they they're just in they're in one little layer and they're just not happy and. Uh, and a lot of times won't even the, the forage can be you know six feet above them and they're not going to leave that zone of comfort to go after that forage so they get poor body condition and then this is like us you know if you're in poor body condition or you're stressed you're more susceptible to the stuff that's always out there the fungus the bacterial infections right. um viruses and, and then they you know they tend to take, get those maladies that we see sometimes when you've mm -hmm. you've said fish kill a few times so you mean a naturally occurring death due to their environment Exactly. And in Lake Anna, we've been lucky that in my knowledge, at least with regards to stripers, the only fish kills that we've had are um, more acidic related, which is a very unique situation up in Contrary Creek from the old um, the mines that were up there. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that that was a whole remediated area uh, due to low pH. Lake Anna actually kind of saved that whole system and has made that a more um, productive. You can look at, you know, people had, can go back and forth about, well, you know, did, by, by taking away the North Anna free-flowing river and putting this dam in and creating this lake, have you made the ecology uh, around here better or worse? And, and you could argue both sides of that all day long and probably be right on, on both of them. But one thing it did, absolutely did do was it helped that that uh, freshwater creek and contrary creek uh, ameliorate the effects of that acid mine drainage. And now we have a you know pretty healthy system there. The down, you know, once in a while, if you have a very, very dry period, like say maybe you know three or four week drought, and then you get like a you know two inch thunderbuster rainstorm, and then you get a surge of water coming through that watershed, it can drop the pH real fast, and and, and fish don't take, especially fish like stripers don't take that well. So I think the two bigger striper kills we've ever had in this lake were, were attributed to to that scenario right there. Interesting. But it wasn't it wasn't a thermal oxygen thing like it's normally when you have a striper kill in a reservoir, it's oxygen thermal thing. You've mentioned a few times, you know, habitat um, before we just dive in there. And I want to make sure um, I know your time is limited. So I want to make sure that we have time to address a few other important topics. But you've <clears throat> talked about habitat and your habitat work um, that you and your agency. Generally speaking, what do you mean by that? The habitat? So, yeah, Lake Anna, we sort of mentioned the aging process and it's not the you know, physical habitat is so important from a variety of, 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 you know, avenues to look at different species of fish, how they reproduce, how they recruit, that is survive to become members of the adult fish population. And, and, and throughout all these, these different aspects of these fish, you know, it, uh, just a, a, a hollowed out moonscape is typically not with desirable, you know, for a prosperous mm -hmm. fish population. And we're, we're talking about, for the layman here, what it looks like underwater. Right. And you'd be surprised swimming along how barren it is in most of the lake. Really? There are a few stumps left over from when the timber were harvested, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s before the lake was filled. Mm -hmm. But there, it, it's, except for some docks, you know, the, the, you've got docks with the pilings, and, and those can be little fish meccas. Um, essentially, anywhere there, there's something besides a, a barren, silty, moonscape mm -hmm. you're going to have some 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 biological activity you're going to have uh 
you're going to have you know colonies of, of paraphyton or colonies of insects and then from there you know maybe some some clams some mollusks and uh you know and then you're going to have some invertebrates uh, benthic macroinvertebrate organisms, these things that are larvae, uh, when, mm-hmm. you know, they're immature, and then maybe crayfish, you know, all these things. But, but you've got to have the habitat to sort of jumpstart these, these, little, these little ecosystems. And, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the cases, these older reservoirs just don't have it. And so one of the things we try to do is, number one, install physical habitat features, whether they're, uh, you know, concrete blocks, whether they are um, – pallets you know old pallets bound together mm-hmm. uh, typically christmas tree reefs and they have been using a lot of smaller lakes mm-hmm. at lake anna years back uh, chris mccotter and, and some other folks we, we we started working on these things called fish habs habs and this is just recycled plastics a lot of it's fishing line from berkeley is a fish fishing tackle manufacturer company and we created these cubes and these are slats um they're four foot cubes constructed with these plastic slats and you can orient them either horizontally or vertically you can bind them together and make them big colonies and and what we found is that by making these large condominiums of these things especially when they're designed horizontally and you sink them you know in 20 25 feet of water if they're double stacked they're coming up eight feet off the bottom you're creating essentially fish condominiums and they're just covered with fish so they're covered with large fish intermediate sized fish young juvenile fish seeking refuge so that they're, they're oasis amidst this sort of desert out there mm-hmm. and and so the, the more of these these larger you know fish have structures you have i think it's hard it's hard to because of the 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 vagaries of, of statistics and and trying to determine if you're actually improving uh, the productivity by adding these things or you're just relocating right. these organisms and that's a hotly contested debate in, in the community now but bottom line is these things wherever we make them they get covered up with fish they get covered up with with algae and paraphyton other types of vegetation you'll see you'll see everything from from catfish to to almost any fish you can name lurking over them near them in them around them uh, and then the other side of the habitat is not just what's well, physical habitat, but it's not stuff that, that that's, that's man-made, it's nature-made, mm-hmm. and, and that is aquatic vegetation. And aquatic vegetation is like mandatory for any healthy ecosystem. And unfortunately, over the years in Lake Anna, a lot of the aquatic vegetation uh, has been hydrilla, which is a type of submersed aquatic plant. We call it SAV. It's phenomenally good stuff. Uh, it's great for wildlife it reduces erosion it's great for nutrient cycling it's great for like fish it's, it's like wonderful except it, sometimes it gets a little overabundant and people that don't fish get upset with it because it's hard to swim in I mean, it's hard to boat through paddle their kayak mm-hmm. through uh, so we're talking about big underwater plants yeah so sav uh is any sort of submersed aquatic plant that's rooted in the substrate or the lake bed mm-hmm. and it grows up through the water column and can top out but it doesn't typically grow through the surface right as opposed to a plant that does grow through the water surface of the water like a water willow and we i think we have a picture of that um or cat cattail as a type of emergent aquatic plant now these are all extraordinarily valuable i said so this picture is this is we're looking at this looks like grass coming out of the water those exactly. are water water, water willow. willow yep now i've i've heard that you can be breaking laws if you were to go out and you know pull this out is that true or is that just rumor mill well you're supposed to if you disturb uh, the, the subaqueous bed, you're supposed to have approval or permit from either from DE, the state water control authority mm-hmm. or, or the wetland permitting agency or the owner of the, the pond or the lake. Mm-hmm. Well, Dominion owns the lake. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think fairly recently they have put up a vegetation policy statement on their website. So I would, I would uh, urge people that if yep. they have 
questions or concerns about that plant to go to Dominion's website and read that policy about aquatic vegetation. Um, it, it, when it comes to us, we tell people we, we, you know, we can't tell them not to do it. We say, we hope, please, please, please don't pull that stuff up. It's really, really beneficial for the lake. Um, and the fish you know, in particular. For, well, for everything. For fish, yes, absolutely for fish. But it, it also protects the shoreline from erosion. And the other big thing it does is it uses up nitrogen and phosphorus. If the nitrogen and phosphorus doesn't go into the water willow and it doesn't go into the hydrilla, guess where it goes? Mm -hmm. Something called HAB. The bloom. Harmful algal bloom, which feeds off phosphorus. Phosphorus is the number one limiting nutrient in any aquatic system. Without it, we've got nothing. Zero. No blue crabs, no fish, no nothing. But with too much phosphorus, we get halves. Uh, so, so, the more, so the more of this naturally occurring, I'll use layman's terms, grass in the water, mm -hmm. the less... Logically speaking, the less algae yep. the lake is going to have. It has, it has to be. <laughs> so it's a it's a balance then for yeah, sure. It is. It's a balance then for sure. That's very interesting. So you guys take proactive efforts to create fish habitat yep. in the water. Yep. Now, if I live here at Lake Anna, I love fishing. Um, I, I, can I, any reason why I shouldn't just go out and create my own habitat off my shoreline 50 feet off? I mean, I can you know, throw in some type, some pallets, some right. old pallets and, and toss them in. Am I, uh, is that going to draw fish uh, to where I live? Is that going to break any rules? It would definitely draw fish and it happens all the time. Uh, but I can't tell people that it's okay to do that without a permit. Sure. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's one of those, it's like driving one mile an hour over the speed limit. You know, it kind of happens all the time, but right. I can't tell you it's legal. Right. Okay. Okay, uh, so but it would definitely draw fish. It would draw, it will draw fish. Noted. Yeah. Noted. Uh, but the, the, one, one last comment about the water willow. And, and it showed up um, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, not just in Lake Anna, but in a lot of lakes that I manage in Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been an absolute godsend. It, it, fish populations have responded all for the better. Really? And, and my, some of my counterparts, like Dan Michelson down in, in uh, Southside Virginia on Lake Gaston, mm -hmm. he's spending weeks with large volunteer crews going out and planting that exact plant. Planting water willow. Planting it and, and trying to protect it from turtles and carp and deer uh, and putting fences around that. I mean, spending a lot of money and a lot of time to plant that stuff. And we've been gifted it up here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's natural. <clears throat> it's natural. You see it in some, you don't see it everywhere. Yep. You definitely don't see it everywhere. There's a lot of it right in front of Tim's. Um, and, and I don't have any here on, you know, I, I live on the private side. I don't see a lot of it on the private side. Um, but you see it along the shoreline more, yeah. the, the spaces I've seen is, is mostly on the, uh, on the public side. I wonder if that has anything to do with the temperature. It could, uh, and it could just be a, a colonization thing. You know, it, it is a native plant right. as far as I know, but for why it's just now seems to be readily colonizing much of the lake. Mm -hmm. I can't, I don't, I can't articulate that. What's the hydrilla like in the lake right now? Is, so, is there any? I haven't seen it in a long time. We've been walking the razor's edge with this thing. Um, uh, Laca was Lake Adams Civic Association was mm -hmm. so Doug Doug Smith was amazing at helping us get up a, a plan of a constituent buy-in with this hydrilla management plan uh, mm -hmm. that was originally drafted almost ten years ago now. Uh, when hydrilla first started showing back up and people had a lot of concern about it, and and so what we tried to do is this. It, it's called. Um, uh, this pest management scheme, um, uh, my brain's just fried for momentarily, but I'll, I'll think of it. Anyway, sure. we're attacking it with, with numerous fronts. Um, we're, we're not only we're using the, the chemical treatment, the herbicides to treat areas where the grass carp, kind of the herbicide is a good spot treatment for like hot 
you know, hot areas like where people want to get a boat in and out, or maybe mm-hmm. you know, if we stock grass carp, they're not going to stay there. Um, so it's um, integrated pecs management, IPM. That's what, what the phrase I was looking for. But it's, it's the idea of using multiple avenues to try to control a pest. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we're calling hydrilla a pest, even though in my opinion, it's not a pest. But we, we understand in some people's opinion, it, it is a pest. And, and so we want to try to make pest for boating and swimming, right. recreational activities. Right. And again, just just to, to draw a clear picture for everybody, it that plant can be large and very thick and i guess driving a boat through it correct me if i'm wrong i mean it can be difficult it can it can tangle around your prop or if you want to swim you're basically you're swimming in it i guess it makes some people uncomfortable but has benefits so many benefits yeah so is it i know there was a lot of hydrilla in the 90s at one point right and then it was mitigated well, it got it got nuked. So at, at that point, most of the high, hundreds of acres on the hot side, that Dominion feared was were gonna that those acres of hydrilla were gonna imp, impact the plant operation. Mm-hmm. So they took dr- a dramatic step, a drastic step of stocking a huge number of grass carp, way more than you would have normally stocked under sort of a. a, a ecologically sound control strategy and plus two and there's somewhat in their defense this was uh in the early, this was before we knew a lot we've learned a lot about grass carp in the last 40 years um, or 30 whatever this 30 years i guess we, we've learned in that time there's been papers published and in, in the journals and, and so we know a little bit more about longevity of grass carp about survival about their consumption on hydrilla and, and so there's no question that, that they were overstocked uh, and not only that, they didn't stay on the hot side. They, you know, fish, fish do go back and forth underneath the dike three all the time. Stripers, walleye, saw guy, they go across. Grass carp came over in the art. So there's, there's passes underneath there. How do they get across? It just, it's, it's a gravity feed. I mean, so there's probably a little bit of velocity in there and it's, right. you know, it's kind of like just going down Niagara Falls in a barrel. You know, it's, <laughs> it's close your eyes and grit your teeth. Um, but they do it. There's no, and, and so immediately those grass carp got from the hot side over on the cold side. And not only did they annihilate, I mean, all the hydrilla on the hot side, but they annihilated all hydrilla on the cold side. And then they took out all the naiad and all the the native, you know, stuff, SAV, the little bit of native SAV that was there. And probably if this water willow was trying to establish itself at that point, there were so many grass carp, they were probably, you know, eating, not that they're known for controlling emergence, but especially with the number of grass carp that were there then. And the fact that if the water willow was trying to establish itself, there would be young tender shoots coming up, you know. You know, it's, it's not hard to figure that the grass carp would have mowed that down too. So, I, I think what happened is, is in, in Lake Anna, it took a, it took over ten to fifteen years for that for Lake Anna to recover for those grass carp to finally die out. And we, we just started, you know, some of the dives I was doing 10, 15 years ago. Hey, look, you know, there's a scrap of hydrilla, like one tiny little, or there's a naiad, southern naiad scrap where we weren't seeing, hadn't seen naiad for years. Um, and, and so I think part of the resurgence that we've had in the last decade with the fishery at Lake Anna has been habitat related and due to the resurgence of not just hydrilla, but other aquatic vegetation that has come back since that massive grass carp population had died out. And now, you know, since the carp are sterile, they don't reproduce. And the ones that we're stocking oh, now, we're putting them in a limited enough numbers. So they're, they're hopefully keeping control of most of the hydrilla problem areas uh, between that and the herbicide you know we're trying to keep a lid on that without it blowing off and making everybody upset with there's too much grass and, and so again it's walking a razor's edge and you, we know we're not everyone's gonna be happy all the time we're just trying to make most of the people happy most of the time right because i guess the recreational folks don't want 
the grasses in the water right. for the reasons we've but, discussed. But a, a lot of that but, was prehab too. You know, this this hab phenomenon has only been in the last four years or so, and and back you know, you know, te- a decade ago, nobody was talking about that. You but know? you know what? I talked to someone at DEQ, and they're going to remain nameless now. Maybe I can get them on the show. Maybe I can't. That they said, and this was a senior person who said, "Hab is not new. Hab has been here since the beginning of the lake." And what has actually changed are the notification thresholds and the notification thresholds have changed. So now all of a sudden there are more alerts going out about it. But this person, according to this person at DEQ, it's it, it's really always been here. This person has and, and his associates have been measuring it since the 70s and the 80s. And it's always been here. And there's just a perception that it's here. Now, I know given the climate and everything that's going on the year and the grasses, it, it goes up and down and it goes up and down. But according to this person, it's not a very new phenomenon. What say you? I agree with that. In fact, one of the things I, my initial thing, my, one of my input with VDH was you're looking a lot harder now. You're right. finding it. Right. You look harder, you're going to find it more. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but the fact remains, increases in any other type of plant is going to help reduce the Is going to reduce it. <clears throat> because you have less phosphorus going to the haps. I know your time is limited. We've got a few more minutes. Um, could you just, you already have some, but just briefly address in just a couple, three minutes. How does, what is Dominion's role in your job? Um, and with um, with respect to your agency, how, what's the level of coordination like between your agency and you and Dominion? And what is their role in, in everything that, that you're trying to accomplish? Well, and they have a big role because they own the lake uh, and they, they operate the power plant. And, and so we've always had a, a very good relationship with the biology staff, the biological staff at Dominion Power. We've worked with them hand in hand on managing the lake. I mean, since I came on, you know, mm-hmm. and even before I came on, they were the biologists were here then. We're, we're doing the same thing. And, you know, we're, we're, we're friends with a lot of the, the biologists and scientists over there. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they're collecting their own data as they're mandated to do. And we appreciate and and uh, so they're required to do it yeah. under permits yeah. and law, yeah, through, basically. Yeah, through the permitting agencies, uh, DEQ is the per- state permitting agency, mm-hmm. and then through the federal agencies that that are oversee the, the nuclear. So you have FERC uh, and, or NRC more than FERC. Um, so they said in the beginning, if if you're going to operate this plant with this lake here, you're required to A, B, and C. Right, and so they've got it. They've got to basically assure. The, the the permit authorities and thereby assure the s- constituents mm-hmm. the the resource agencies and the the public mm-hmm. that what they're doing is sound and safe and they're not contaminating uh the fish the people the, the sediments whatever um they're 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 basically conducting this operation in, in a sound and, and scientifically valid manner and and to to, to, to kind of prove that uh, they they have their own staff that that and, and we review those policies. We review how they collect their data, their summaries, their annual reports every year we get. Uh, we have to sign off on those. And, and it, they're doing a good job. I mean, it, it, sometimes we'll come up with a different idea and we'll say, hey, you know, why don't you look, uh, an example would be uh, smallmouth bass spawning in the North Anna River. Um, over the years, there's been some concern that, that, you know, the minimum flow that they have to release from the dam to keep water in the North Anna River sometimes may be a little bit on the late side. And, and especially if there's if the plant gets down, the water level gets down below a certain level, then they can start releasing less. And so that that 
that has drawn some concern. And so some years back, we asked them, say, hey, you know, you need to look at the smallmouth bass spawning uh, and, and the populations in the North Anna River below the dam because that, that's a very, um, it's a very popular resource. And, and we're, you know, it, it's, it's a valuable resource. And so we, we'd be concerned that the operations as much as possible don't impact that fishery. Mm-hmm. And they were, and to this day, they're still collecting data on reproduction and growth of smallmouth bass. And down. when you say below the dam, you mean like the water that leaves the lake, right. leaves the dam right. and is in the Anna River. North the, Anna River. On the way out. Yep. On the way out. Yep. So Dominion works with you guys. They share their data. Mm-hmm with you there's water quality mostly do do they pay much of a role in monitoring fish habitat or is it mostly focused on water quality it's it's more focused on water quality and and the fishery resources themselves just like you know we do electrofishing and gill netting they do electrofishing and gill netting oh they do on the the hot side and the cold side interesting yeah interesting so we do get that biological input from the hot side well before we tap out here uh is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you think Hmm. locals residents fishermen competitive fishermen local recreational fishermen would uh would find interesting or uh or noteworthy anything you want to add before we wrap up any old wives tales um gigantic only thing i'll mention is is that the lake anna loch ness monster you may or may (laughs) not have seen we talked about a lot obviously yeah i can talk a lot you can talk a lot we can talk a lot um (laughs) we could keep going yeah we could i mean you could talk about stuff for hours no, I, th- I think we hit the highlights, especially considering that, that some of the listeners may not be overly, um, you know, they might not be huge anglers or maybe, you know, not expert anglers. You know, I think we cut some of the stuff we needed to hit on. The, we, we did talk a lot about public access and private access. I, I do want to mention that it, it, it technically isn't, in my mind, a true public access on Lake Anna right now because it's not a free public access. Um you know, even the state park, I think, requires a fee most of the time, if not all the time. You got to pay a couple bucks to put your to yeah, get in yeah. or drop your boat. And, or and, and, and years ago, we had a true public access on 522 on the upper end of Pamunkey Creek Arm. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of times when we have boat ramps on water bodies, uh, they're, they're ours. We own them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot, in the case of this 522 site, we, we had, it was a long to a 20 year lease and the landowner decided not to renew the lease. And, and that that that's still there. It's, it's gated off with a with a guardrail, um, but you can actually still see the decaying old ramp. And I always wondered why that person didn't choose to renew the lease, and that land's not being used for anything. Uh, maybe it was a litter problem. Uh, who knows? But suffice it to say, we've been looking for another true public access where somebody can launch their boat without paying. Because to, in our mind, if if you've bought a fishing license and you've registered and titled your boat, you should be able to put your boat in Lake yeah. Anna free. Yeah, you should public. have to pay. Uh, and and we're, it's, it's embarrassing that we don't have uh, a real access on Lake Anna like we used to at 522. Now, that was all the way at the upper end of the lake. So if you wanted to fish mid-lake or down lake, you had a hell of a run. But it was there, and now we don't have anything. Well, so let me ask you this. We're if there's to- someone who's listening like and has you know, you know, a, a potential spot to do that or yeah. to lease it, sure. um, if there's someone like that, who's listening and, and could help i mean yeah. should they just should they contact you should sure. they contact Anybody at the agency yeah and just con- yeah so reach out it, we've looked at a couple sites in the last five years or so um now at one point we own dyke three that used to be dominion they they gave us the deed because honestly it's a it's a bit of a headache to manage dyke three um, oh, so dyke three is the states now we own that and and we had plans to put a boat ramp in there for the public and louisa county did not want it so we we stepped away from it Interesting. Yep. Interesting. Would that have gone on the end where, I guess, where you see a lot of people fishing? 
all the way down at, at close, yeah, the close east to that end, quarry, closest yeah. to the, yeah, yeah we yeah. wouldn't have messed with that fishing area, but it would have been kind of on the other side of that fishing area in that cove. Is but but the county been. just didn't. The county did not want it there. Interesting. I think I don't know if it was it was a public push in the county to say no, if it was a supervisor at that time. Yeah, right. Want, this is this is quite. I mean, this is probably fifteen years ago at least. Interesting. But those those plans are still in somebody's uh, oh, yeah. file cabinet. Maybe, maybe they should reconsider that. Maybe <laughs> they should reconsider. If people want to reach out to you, John, how how can they contact you? I'm pretty accessible. Um, people know my name or they, uh, they know anybody's name and they just remember a pretty easy email tagline. They can they can contact that person. So it's the person's first name with a period and their last name. So it'd be John, J-O-H-N dot Odenkirk, O-D-E-N-K-I-R-K at the agency acronym D-W-R dot mm -hmm. Virginia spelled out dot gov, G-O-V. So you have an office phone number? Yeah, I uh, just call my cell number five four zero eight four five nine six six one. That's your cell. That's Do you have a uh, big social media profile or anything? You got a bunch of followers out there. I zero social. You media don't have a TikTok friend. page. I, I see you on TikTok dancing around. No, none of that. I have. I've never been on Facebook <laughs> in my life. I'm proud of it. We got to change that, man. You've yeah. got a lot of neat stuff going on here. Wait, wait, if you started posting some pictures we, of what you got going on, we've got a huge agency. DWR does some stuff. Yeah, we've got some people in there pushing out some amazing stuff right now. It's it's, it's phenomenal what they're doing. So, yeah, check out our social, our, our agency social website stuff. But we, uh, yeah, it's uh, not me personally. How much fishing do you get to do personally here at the lake? Uh, you come too often. I fished, with, I fished with Curly not too long ago. Uh, maybe a month. Oh, that picture right there uh, was, was maybe a month, uh, six weeks ago. Um, I, I a few times a year. Uh, not as much as I used to. I don't fish anywhere as often as I used to. My, I got a fifty acre horse farm in Rappahannock. So wow. That's yeah. your time. That's my That's time. time. Man. Well, man, I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you very, very yeah, much. No, it's great talking to you. And I'm, I'm hopefully, you know, answer some this questions super for people helpful. or open up some questions. I'd be happy to try to answer any questions anybody has. Thanks to you and thanks to your agency for letting me come on. Well, thank appreciate you for your time, man. Publicizing it. Absolutely. All right.